All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Serious Angler podcast, powered by our friends over at X2 Power Batteries. And as always, we are back with our host, the captain, Mr. Andy Full, and I am Ooh. Bailey Eigbrett. We are... Well, you gave me hosting duties. I That's gave you hosts. I didn't want it tonight. I gave it over to you. <laughs> oh, passing the torch. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I'm ready for that, but when you're not here, I'm greatly able and willing to uh, fill in for your seat. But Everyone knows that you do a top-notch job, so I will pass it back. I uh, I blame my wife and her uh, the uh, dude. <laughs> she gone. The, the, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the apple cider margaritas that my wife beautifully made. Uh, telling you, nah, that apple joking. cider margarita. As we're already on a tangent to start this awesome episode that we have oh, coming up, but swap out the tequila and put bourbon in it. Just trust me on this one. I'll try it. We got a bunch of cider upstairs. It's that time of year. Incredible. Apple cider and bourbon is like one of my absolute favorites. Did she, she made the apple cider margarita the other night with like, you know how usually margaritas have the salt in the ring. She put cinnamon instead. Oh yeah. Dude, it was the the sauce. Now be careful. Barton might ban us because that's no text. Yeah. But it's illegal in Texas to have apple cider. <laughs> well, obviously, too fruity. To, too fruity. to introduce our guest for today, yeah. Um, a very frequented guest now on this show, our pal, Mr. Stephen Barden, who's going to, as you can tell by the title, whether you are listening on MP3 or watching on YouTube, we're going to be talking about the top, the top three topics slash issues that you as an angler should know about in bass fishing. That way you can either have the knowledge to speak on it or know about going forward or be able to support it if you're able to. So it's going to be some good conversation. We might come forth with some, some of our ideas that might be pressing, but um, most importantly, Steve's going to have his top three as well as potentially some other news he might have in the docket for us that uh, we'll get into today. Yeah, but you never know what Steve is going to bring to the table. So no, yeah, you ain't kidding. <laughs> but uh, before we get Steve on here, a couple things for you guys. Uh, as always, we're going to keep reminding you until these are up, but the rec lending and the Project Purple giveaway is down in the description. Go support those if you can. Uh, again, the rec lending giveaway, that's good until January 6th, uh, but that's $10,000 cash and prizes that you can win. Uh, and it's super easy to sign up, but then you just put your email, to, uh, email in there and you're good to go. Um, and then the Project Purple is, uh, that's a donation because uh, Project Purple, they're fighting the good fight against pancreatic cancer. So if you want to donate a dollar, that's one entry. If you want to donate $10, that's 10 entries. So um, if you're able to, uh, again, we're not trying to force anybody's hand here, but if you're able to lend a few bucks to help some people that need it, uh, we encourage you to do so. And you get a chance to win a bunch of cool stuff like X2 power lithium batteries, baits, and some serious anger swag as well. Um, so please do so if you're able. Again, down in the description. Um, and also, Black Friday sale has started early. For the folks at Omnia Fishing, twenty oh, percent off. So I've already, maybe, potentially, possibly made a couple orders, uh, <laughs> but nonetheless, you guys can go save some money. And uh, it ceases to amaze me with you there, Bailey. Uh, dude, I'm really bad about like with my ADHD. I go and I make order something I think I need, and then yeah. like literally, it does not fail. Two hours later, I forget what I actually need, and I have to go back and reorder again. So I pay twice oh. the shipping. Dude, I've done that way too many times, and it's absurd. But you know what the solution to that is? Is getting the Premium Pro on Omnia Fishing. Because one, you get the mapping, which is unbelievable. 
Uh, we're going to be having some more episodes coming up soon talking about what they're doing over at the Omni Fishing app because it might honestly be the one-stop shop app that you ever need on your mobile on your mobile phone. I won't um, lie. Like, I actually run it a lot now in conjunction on my boat when I'm out graphing because it really helps break down water quicker as well with that Premium Pro and the mapping tool. And there was an episode that we did with it a couple weeks back with Trevor that mm -hmm. really dives into it that if you missed it, you should go back and watch because there's a lot of good information there. Yeah, I mean, that bottom hardness one is like, it's got me thinking, man. I saw the Hobie BOS announce their schedule for next year for the Harris chain. And I pulled up the Harris chain and the bottom hardness. And I was looking out in the middle of like Nowhere. Dora and stuff like that. And I was like, huh, it says it's hard out there. Maybe I'm sure there might be some Floridians that are like, damn it, those are where my brush piles are. And they're, they're all pissed now because it's a, a bottom hardness map. Like it's, yeah. it's, I've never seen that anywhere else where yeah, somebody's had a bottom hardness map. Like it's, it's pretty and that's the craziest part about it too, right? It, it's basically real time data that was uploaded through C map software and then uploaded into Omnia's. So it's literally being read off of somebody's graph that was graphing on that lake. And then they updated the, they uploaded their information to Lawrence. So it's gotta be relatively close to actual and factual. So like that it's actual and factual. Yeah. Actual and factual. Bars. Got bars. Damn t-shirt. <laughs> Clip it. <laughs> man, but, we uh, are on a roll tonight. I'll tell you that. It's something, man. It's just, it's the Steve effect. That's all it is. Yeah. Everybody's jazzed. Uh, before we get Steve on, uh, this weekend, I'm looking forward to getting out on the water because I don't know if you saw, but cold front's coming. Fishing's going to be good. It is yeah. literally mid, it's early November slash mid-November. Uh, it is prime time, brown dog, brown fin tuna time. So, well, another thing, I'm just glad to finally, as much as I love the Blackfish Sun gear that I'm wearing right now, I'm I'm excited to put it away for the wintertime. Break out that gale pole over the or the uh, the zenith jacket. Oh, talking about and, blackfish, steelhead fishing because I'm out outside in the elements all day long. They're undergarment stuff, right? Like I forgot exactly. Oh, the dude, base, the, base the base layers, unreal. I literally sweat when it's like 33 degrees out and I'm standing there in my waders. Like it is <laughs> yeah. fantastic stuff. And that's a, that's a call out. Even if you're not fishing right now, I'm looking at you bow hunters yeah. that are, are listening to this on your way to the stand this morning. If you're struggling to find a good base layers, I promise you go to Omnia fishing. Uh, I'll make a note here actually to make it easier on folks. I will Hang link up. the base layers uh, to Omnia Fishing below, and you can use our code to say, well, it's like wide 20% off Black Friday right now at Omnia, yeah. so you can save 20% on the base layer. But Huge seriously, thing. it is legit. It is legit for all you bow hunters and people that are, even if you're looking towards gun season, things like that. But uh, nonetheless, before I get on a hunting rant, because I have serious FOMO right now of all my buddies that are bow hunting, uh, we're going to get Steve on here because I will not stop talking about bow hunting for the next 40 minutes. Hmm. So without, <laughs> without further ado, let's bring him on here. Mr. Stephen Barden, what's going on, good sir? Hey guys, how are y'all this evening? Good man, good. Bailey's not as good as you it. are. In. Bailey's feeling it. Congratulations, Bailey, on the wedding. Uh, thank you, thank you. That is a fun path you're starting in the journey of life. And uh, that's right. Call me and Andy when you need advice. Yeah, definitely, we'll do that. But, uh, definitely, we, we call Steve. definitely call Steve. Definitely call Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I talk to Andy too much, Steve. So I'll probably, I'll probably ring your ring your line but we gotta have bad advice too yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was funny I though see myself out of here oh it, it was 
just me and Steve tonight. Sorry, Andy. See you later. Uh, Lan and I were talking though the week after we got married. We we're like, man, nothing really changes besides your last name. My hand got a little bit heavier, and that's that's about it. Because we've been living together for a long time. Yep. It's fun. It, it feels different though. Like people say, like, yeah, you feel different afterwards. It, it's that's a real thing. It's, yeah, you it's feel a cool, that's an awesome thing. And then uh, you know you're gonna have struggles and you're going to have successes. And I guess my word of advice is um, do things for your wife and never expect a thank you. And, oh, yeah. and then every time she does something for you, make sure you say thank you. Uh, if you can do that, you'll, you'll be pretty successful. I love that because literally at the wedding, uh, my grandparents were leaving that, that evening and we went to say goodbye to my grandpa in front of Lan goes, remember, now that you're married, you wake up and the first thing you say is, I'm sorry, because chances <laughs> are you're going to mess something up. <laughs> oh, you just will. get out ahead of time. Yeah, you will. <laughs> you will. <laughs> like that. That's really good. Always, always, I'm sorry. And what can I do now to make <laughs> yeah. it better? Yeah. yeah, you'll mess a lot up. Yeah. Well, Steve. Dude, it's good to get you back on here. And uh, it sounds like you are packing some news. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's there's a lot going on in the fishing world right now. A lot of controversy. And I think we should get ahead of it. We should talk about it early. Um, probably one of the most historic events in the history of fishing happened uh, over the last couple of months. And I think um, I think it might be news to you guys even what, what has happened. But it's, it's one of the most important things ever. So a little back history, um, the American Fishery Society published a book called the eighth edition of common and scientific names of fishes in the US, Canada and Mexico. And they published it a month ago. And in this publication, they do this, this is the eighth one. Um, they do it roughly every 10 years, although it's, it's varied uh, over time. Mm -hmm. But in this edition, there's 5,089 species of fish in North America. That's up from 3,800 or so fish 10 years ago. That's a big jump. That's it's a big year. jump. And um, see, what happens is every time a scientific paper is written about a species of fish, it is cataloged. Um, and then a joint group of American Fishery Society and the uh, American Society of Ichthyologists and Herpetologists all get together and they have this working group to discuss if a species should or should not be included. Um, and these are like native species or non-native species that are reproductive and now live in North America. But here's the controversy. For the first time since the 1800s, the largemouth bass has a new name. What? Yeah, there we go. A new scientific name for largemouth bass. And why is that? Well, that's not the question, Andy. We'll get to that. Is it melon head? Is it uh, <laughs> ditch pickle? pickle? <laughs> Can no, it be a fun no. one? <laughs> it's no fun. It's no fun. Um, so here's here's the deal. Uh, largemouth bass have the scientific name they used to have, Micropterus salmoides. Okay. Mm. They've had that since the 1800s. Uh, there was a paper written last year, and a biologist named Andrew Taylor and uh, a couple of other researchers together, they looked at genetically where do largemouth versus Florida bass occur. And on a historic perspective, um, Florida bass 
are all the bass from all the largemouth from Florida up through South Carolina. And it just so happens that the fish that was identified originally as a largemouth bass and given the name Micropter salmoides was from South Carolina. So Andrew argued that whenever that fish was identified, they actually identified the Florida bass, not the largemouth bass. So they gave Florida bass the scientific name Micropterus salmoides starting last month. So it now gets the largemouth bass name and the largemouth now have a new new name. Um, and so they are Micropterus nigricans now. So in the scientific community, everything that's ever been published uh, now has to be rewritten. Oh, geez. That's a mess. <laughs> now, that's a real controversy, guys. Huh? <laughs> Talk about a lot of redacting. This yeah. is breaking news, Bailey. This should be the headline on the New York Times. The most popular fish in America has a new scientific name for the first time in 200 years. I can already see the YouTube title now. The largemouth bass is no more. Well, I mean... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Maybe I should make one, right? Maybe I should make a video. I think it would break the you internet. Should. Um, you really should. Also, really cool, because um, the book is, is really intriguing to me because I'm a nerd. Um, there's also now 14 species of black bass that have been scientifically identified and given scientific names. So in the last so 10 years, from, how many has it increased? Uh, five. Yeah, we've, we've introduced five new species. Um, two of those species are, are subspecies of, of uh, smallmouth bass. So we have three species of smallmouth bass now, uh, two, two species, largemouth in Florida, that are now separate species. Um, and then we have the red-eye complex, the spotted bass complex, and those continue to grow as well. So what are... If you don't mind me asking, what are the subspecies of smallmouth? Um, the the Noatia and dang it, Bailey, you you stumped me. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't know what it we is. We got them, guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't remember the other one, bud. Um, is it because they're like northern and southern, and then it's like no, no, no. So all smallmouth throughout the United States are smallmouth bass. Um, the Noatia is from the Noatia River in Oklahoma. And then there's a, a very small area where the other species is. I'm going to have to look it up because you're driving me crazy, Bailey. Um, there's the, uh, let's see. The two recognized subspecies. This is Wikipedia. I don't know if I trust that. No, I'm doing this. Uh, yeah, so. Dalam uh, I can't even pronounce these things. Neosho and Northern. No. no, you're on Wikipedia. Yeah, well, that's that was from Mossy Oak, but I don't know if I trust that either. <laughs> I figured that much. Uh, stay tuned. I will let you know before we're done what they right. are. <laughs> Golly, <laughs> Bailey. What a great question to ask right away. I apologize. Dropping it. So, so, so here's the deal, guys. Um, this matters to 0.0, .0 people in the world. Um, your state agencies will have to reprint some, um, you know, some of the stuff on their website. It won't change any laws, regs, anything like that. It is officially making Florida bass a species, uh, Micropterus salmoides. 
for researchers um, or, or scientists, what we will do now is basically every paper published uh, October 2023 or newer will go off of the new names. And then October 2023 or older will keep the old names. Uh, I so feel bad for anybody that started a paper like the middle of September and didn't know this change was coming and it's like a thousand pages and they have to go back and rechange all of it. That just sounds right. Brutal. Well, the, the other hard part is what about if you're a grad student right now or in the next four or five years and you're trying to like create a, uh, you know, a work cited page. And, and so then you have to say like at every single junction, like these fish are now known as this. Oh. But Andrew but Taylor's. I mean, if you think about it, though, it's just going to add more length to the paper. So you have to type possibly less words in. No, Andy. Science is not based on word count, buddy. <laughs> we don't get well, to use he our has middle more names. words. He's smarter. <laughs> hey, I mean, some people names, think so. that way, all right? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one is going to be the Owishita. O-U-A- Washita? Is that Washita? Yeah. There you go. Washita. Not, not trying to correct you, but... No, please. Hey, man, we're we're learning them for the first time, right? This is this is <laughs> what we have to do. This is like our Super Bowl. So right. those, those are two new smallmouth. Um, but they're both Oklahoma and, and right at that Missouri uh, border, limited to very small streams, uh, Every other smallmouth in the United States is a northern smallmouth or, or smallmouth. You know, okay. and, and this is like a question I have is, you know, before gobies were introduced into the Great Lakes, right? Like mm -hmm. you could go from a river system on the Great Lakes, like the Niagara River where I'm at, and then go to the Finger Lakes and catch like a pelagic smallmouth as opposed to like a goby eating smallmouth. Right. They look and act completely different so why wouldn't they have slightly different genetic makeup because they don't because because everything you're seeing there's a maybe there's there's genotype that's your genetic makeup and your genotype gives you this whole list of things that you're going to have as a fish and then there's phenotype and that's the physical um the physical equation like the physical whatever shows up from the genotype so the the food side of that manipulates what shows up from that phenotype as well. You okay. Excess calories, things like that. Um, also, you have a slight variance in species based on their environment. So if I'm in a river-based system, I need a broader caudal tail so I can move through the water. Um, I need to be more slim and long so that I can handle current. When I don't need to handle current, I can become shorter, compact, but I need to be able to ambush prey um, or maybe have more muscle density so that I can swim longer uh, to go find prey. So yeah, body shape changes with environment, but that's phenotype. Thank you. Yeah. So why is this not a controversy, Bailey? Why? I don't think everybody knew about it. until. You why don't I have 30 YouTube videos a day talking about this? <laughs> I had a, very smart ass comment, but I'm not gonna. Say it. <laughs> uh, now you gotta say if you say no, no, no I'm not one to name names on here. I'm not one to talk crap about somebody that doesn't need it coming to them. So, so you're saying There's I gotta a, find a controversial YouTuber and whisper to their ear and let them 
put it on a megaphone for me? Well, I mean, there's there's one out here that's glaring that only talks about negative things and puts negative spins on things that don't need it. But that's not you, Steve. So no, I'm no, not going to throw is, that uh, and, Andrew Taylor is one of the, the finest geneticists in the country whenever it comes to fish genetics. Uh, a really great guy. Would be a phenomenal uh, guest on, on one of your shows. He's done a lot of work. I mean, coming up with an argument to change the scientific name of largemouth bass and being successful at that. Like what, that's, what that's was pretty the, impressive. What was the argument? Due diligence. Should we save uh, this? We're trying to get Andrew on the show. If you could, you get Andrew on the show for us. Oh yeah, yeah. Not right now, but yeah. No, we want to right change the right name now. of largemouth. He's a professor, uh, so I'm sure he's he's diligently working on research as we speak. But uh, yeah, we could definitely have Andrew on. I'd love to bring him on and. Let him explain change, the story. Does that change the common name of it? Is it medium mouth bass now? No, no. We still have largemouth bass, uh, but we, we do have Florida bass. Until last month, uh, Florida bass were not officially a species. Mm. And now American Fishery Society recognizes it. It's in a book. It's concrete detail. We have 5,000 uh, species in North America now. That's cool. Pretty wild. That's crazy. It's crazy. The first edition of it, I'm just looking at my notes here. Uh, the The book is 75 years old, and uh, the first edition had 570 fish. That's all they knew. Oh, so in so, the span of roughly 80 years, they have found right. over 5,000 species of fish. Well, they found another 4,500. That's right, Andy. Yeah, isn't that amazing, guys? That's and that pretty, is, pretty wild. I don't really know how to, uh, to go at that. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel good that we got to cover this, uh, and this is the more to come on that. First... People, I would love to get Andrew Taylor on the show and be like, "Why?" No, I mean he's he's got a great story about it. It, it all boils down to the original fish that was identified as a largemouth was truly a Florida, and so if you go historically, um, we always name fishes based on who identified it first and then put it into a, a family. So the family, Mycropterus, and the species named Salmoides, uh, rightfully, goes to Florida Bass. Hmm. That's pretty dang interesting. I would love to get him on the show. Yeah. 200 years of history changed. Oh. Yeah. That's news. Uh, uh, there's no if more. there's anything. I'd say if there's anything about history, it's meant to be changed, and it also repeats itself. So, uh -oh. like, so you're saying know, it's coming back around? It might come back around somewhere else. You never okay. know. Cool. It, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's well, all I got. Thank you all for joining me. Have a that's good it. That's the show. See you later. <laughs> <That's guys. the laughs> show. No, uh, Bailey, you want to talk about? Uh, you want to talk about issues? The, yeah. Well, well the as, an, as an angler. Mm -hmm. Right now in, in bass fishing, somebody right. that truly cares about our sport, what are the top three things they should be concerning themselves about to protect the future of bass fishing? Okay. You don't want me to go first? Uh, you want me to tell you one? Do y'all want to? I know we we mentioned offline, Andy and I might have two each. And I think mm -hmm. it would be kind of fun to see. We'll just throw two ideas out there. We don't really have to expand on them. But see if they line up, if any of ours line up with. All right. Your... I wrote mine down. So, what I would okay. love is from Bailey's perspective, the angler, uh, maybe tournament angler, 
and then Andy Engler, but but on the guide side as well. I'd love to to get the perspective because I think, um, especially with some of the more popular topics right now, like forward facing sonar, I think whenever you get a group of people together and you have like tournament anglers, regular anglers, guides, and biologists, they all have a little bit different perspective on what the issues really are. So let's do it for for the whole blanket. What are the issues of fisheries? All right, let's go guide perspective. What do you what do you okay. think? Throw your two out, Andy. So the biggest like the biggest one that I see a lot of times, just like while I'm out on the Great Lakes fishing around, and I'm not just calling out other guides, like everybody handles fish and their fish cares different based on the person, right? But I think that might be like the number one issue we have is fish care, because if you're going to not treat these fish properly and immediately release them and take proper preventative measures to save the fish's life and allow the fish to have longevity for it to live by releasing it properly and taking care of barotrauma. Like a lot of people, I, I find myself scooping fish up multiple times a week to throw in my live while fizz them, give them some fish care treatment, like some G juice or whatever I have in the boat at the time, let them revive and then get them back in the water. And hopefully they'll survive and have a long life. But at that point, barotrauma is probably already taken over if they've been floating on the surface for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, or even 10 minutes by the time I get them. So I think my number one issue is probably fish care and proper handling. Like keep them in the net, keep them wet. If you're going to take a picture, get them up, take that picture quick and get them back in the water immediately as fast as you can so that fish has the ability to live a long time but on the flip side i also see the side that we should probably be keeping some more fish than we do and that will also help as we've talked in the past steve right and that can actually help the overall size of some of the fish in the lake because of a competition side of things like if you're gonna poorly handle these fish or gut hook them and rip the hook out and throw them back just keep them like If you're not going to handle them properly, keep your creel limit. It's going to actually probably help the fishery a lot better than just leaving a poor image on all the anglers who are out there and there's a bunch of dead bass floating around. Yeah, I I really like Andy's list, uh, you know, with fish care being extremely important across the country, especially guides, tournament anglers, weekend anglers. That, that's huge in the advice you gave is spot on Andy. Uh, that's, that's what we should all be striving to do. And then I think that keeping more fish, although it didn't make my list, it, I, I literally wrote bonus topic, harvesting fish. So, so you hit, yeah. you hit one very close to my that's list. It. Every once in a while, Steve, I have a golden nugget. All right. Like <laughs> I, I love it, buddy. Yeah. Once so, every 100 episodes. Is <laughs> well, I'm glad I was here for it, Andy. That's right. <laughs> all right, guys. See ya. I'm out of here. <laughs> I'll see you in another hundred episodes. No, <laughs> Uh, from my perspective, and this is minor kind of more, one of them is more regional specific. Uh, the other one, some regions don't have as much of this issue, but the first one I have, and this will make one of our buddies, Drew Gregory, very happy because he talks about it all the time, um, is Alabama bass and the impact it's having on fisheries where it's depleting either smallmouth and or spotted bass like actual spotted bass, like Kentucky spots. Um, there's that one. Uh, and again, this is that's one I don't feel like I can speak that well to, being that it's out of my realm, but it's one that I'm in the knowledge about, uh, being that I've 
heard about it so much from Drew, and he's a he's a hard advocate for it. Um, and the other one I have is overfishing in regards to tournaments, like too many tournaments. Uh, and this is more, I think, applies to that of like the TVA. Like you see some of the guys going through it right now that are on Chickamauga or uh, the Southeast. You got you guys see some just tournaments every single day, and you see some fisheries taking. It seems like anyway an impact right. on that. And you have a lot of people that say that they think that it's taking an impact. So I think it'd be maybe good to talk about. Yeah, that's so. Those are also two really good topics. Uh, neither that made my list, but still yeah. strong topics. Alabama bass. Um, is one that everybody should know and be concerned with. Um, it truly is. And the reason, um, if we go back to Mr. Andrew Taylor, uh, he'd be a great guest to talk about the evolution of bass. Uh, mm -hmm. But from, from things I've learned from him and things I've learned about Alabama bass, basically, whenever you have uh, smallmouth, spotted bass, and largemouth, they all evolved in complexes where there was slight overlap. And so genetically, they were able to adapt to slightly different reproductive uh, times a year, not time of year, but you know what I mean, slightly different reproductive methods um, and forage preferences. The Alabama bass did not evolve with those three. It was in a very small complex of creek and river stream channels. So that watershed excluded largemouth, smallmouth, spotted bass. So what that has allowed Alabama bass to do now is when they're stocked into reservoirs that have one of those other three or multiple of those other three, the Alabama bass reproduction lasts longer throughout the year and can cover various habitats. So they have overlap with largemouth spots and smallmouth bass. Their genetics is much stronger so it will swamp the population with additional Alabama bass uh, genetics. So eventually, in a, especially a smallmouth or spotted bass lake, they will literally hybridize and breed the pure species out of existence. Um, there's also their forage preference um, overlaps those species, so then they, they end up out competing them. Um, there's no way to look at a spotted bass and, and just by picking it up and say, hey, this is an Alabama versus a true spotted bass. So that makes, um, that makes the management of those species very difficult because when they are introduced into an environment, they go unnoticed for a long amount of time. And then they create that hybridization and, and that continual hybridization uh, allows them to maybe sneak into a population for 10 plus years before they're actually identified. And then it's, it's kind of gone too far uh, the initial Alabama bass, when they're stocked into an environment, they do really well. And then as they become more abundant, they, they tend to stunt. And so stunted fish, you guys know, that means that we're not weighing them in. That means that we're releasing them because our harvest regulations don't cover that size class of fish. And we're forced to release them. And so we're not improving those fisheries. So Alabama bass is a merging subject. Uh, I think the only reason it didn't make my list is just because it's regional. So that's a really good one, Bailey. And then kind of overfishing is the same thing. You know, whenever we look at, um, I take a, like a Toledo Bend. We look at Toledo Bend and, and there'll be tournaments that have 500 plus boats. Um, for a short window, that feels like overfishing. That's a lot of boats on the water. Um, I think that that it's 
uh, a little bit um, maybe too on the nose to be like that's overfishing because we're not taking into account the number of fish that the reservoir actually supports. Um, and, and so we're giving those anglers uh, a higher catch percentage per fish in the population than, than is truly there. But I think that you can have situational overfishing, especially during the spawn, like you say, TVA in the fall. Um, you know, you you guys have seen those boat ramps. I mean, it, it can feel like overfishing. And this brings, um, this brings me to like the topic. A lot of times whenever we look at the science, the hard facts and data, it doesn't exactly match up to what an angler sees on the water because you're seeing observation and you're looking at I'm on the water and I can see a mile ahead of me and I can see the boats and I can watch the way in and that's what I observe. Um, and so whenever we're talking about science, we try to zoom out from that. We try to look at fisheries on a longer timeline, like a decade timeline. Uh, yeah. We also try to look at fish outside of the individual. So like Andy's fish care, like although that is super essential, especially for tournament and guide anglers, uh, it's an individual fish. So if I, as a biologist, like really focus on that individual fish, um, I'm letting hundreds of thousands of other fish not be my focus. So we look at these big picture ideas. So whenever you ask me to put together my list, um, for the most part, two out of the three are these bigger picture ideas. One of them could be considered kind of in lines with what you guys were talking about, more localized issues. Um, so in no particular order, and then we can cover them however you want, Bailey. Uh, okay. My three issues are, number one, reservoir aging. Okay. Number two is habitat loss. And number three is loss of access for anglers. Oh. Yeah, those are my three. And I think loss of access could kind of fit. I, I, I thought for a second that you were going down that same... Uh, avenue whenever we start talking about overfishing and the pressure on fisheries uh, I thought maybe we were gonna gonna overlap a little bit on that topic but I've, I've got those three as if I was going to go across the United States these are the issues that uh, most biologists are concerned about so which like one do you want to tackle first let's uh let's talk about the loss of access okay great um, so reservoirs construction in the United States, I think we've mentioned this, peaked in the 1960s and 70s and has mm -hmm. steadily declined. Most reservoirs were constructed uh, for one of three reasons. Number one, power generation. Number two, to impound water to prevent downstream flooding. And number three, to provide water for us at our homes for drinking and municipal reasons, right? So over time, uh, especially these power plants that were built on reservoirs, uh, over time, they've had to be decommissioned for several reasons. And as a power plant is decommissioned, uh, whether it's nuclear or coal-based power, uh, that stops the use of that water. So a, a water, a reservoir, is not owned by your state, most likely, um, in the fact that, I mean, your state fisheries agency. So, uh, you know, your department in New York, mine in Texas, Texas Parks and Wildlife, they don't own fisheries. For the most part, they manage the resources, which is the habitat and the fish within them. They don't even manage the water quality, really. That goes to someone else. So instead, 
those reservoirs were owned by either the companies that built them uh, or by like the Corps of Engineers, TVA, something like that, that, that built them. Um, so whenever you have a reservoir that is no longer going to generate power at it, uh, a lot of times those reservoirs will be sold because the electric company that originally built it that was profiting on the hydroelectric or the cooling of the power plant no longer needs it. Um, that That's a failing asset at that point to them. So they're going to sell it off. When they sell it off, um, that could be to a private company. It could be to, uh, hmm. you know, like we have Lake Fairfield here in Texas and Lake Fairfield is right at, 2,500 surface acres. So it's not the biggest reservoir in the world, but it's a trophy bass fishery. It also used to be a trophy redfish fishery because it was uh, it was a power plant lake. So the water temperature is always warm and they stocked it with redfish. Okay. So that reservoir went up for sale on the private market and um, is, is right now being purchased to put in like a, a gated community where the homeowners would be the only ones to access the lake from now on. Now, here's the issue with that. Whenever you have these public reservoirs that, that our fisheries have been managing for all these years, that means your tax dollars were involved in building the state park, maintaining the facilities, including the boat ramps, as well as stocking, managing, and surveying the fish. So your dollars have went into managing this reservoir, and now you have a loss of access issue. The same thing can be said if reservoirs are drawn down for water reasons um, or if the land is sold by the state, uh, you know, to where that can be urbanized and, and, you know, have housing divisions or docks or things like that built on it. So we're losing access to a lot of our reservoirs uh, just because of their age and the change of use in that reservoir. I feel like... Is this issue more specific to southern states, if you will? Because I feel like not all states have kind of those man-made reservoirs. That's exactly right. Yeah. In the in northern United States, you have more natural reservoirs or natural right. lakes. Uh, natural lakes were built through glaciation. You know, as the glaciers receded, uh, they were carved out. Some of them were, were sinkholes. Uh, you know, there's, there's several different reasons why lakes were built naturally. In the southern United States, that's not the case. Uh, so as water flows down the rivers, it was impounded for various reasons um, and, and created reservoirs. So you could say, um, you know, as you guys leave New York, you could say like, well, Pennsylvania, maybe that's not really an issue. But you start getting to Virginia, West Virginia, it starts becoming an issue. So I would say two thirds of the U.S. or more. Um, maybe it's Maybe it's like three quarters of the U.S. This is an issue for. Uh, you go west, and this becomes a really big deal because not only losing access for for reservoir selling, losing access because water uh, rights are changing. So a lot of water rights uh, are made to where water can be a farmer can basically say, "I need water to irrigate with," and can buy their allotment uh, from the river. And a lot of these farms have seasonal crops, so they're all drawing at the same time. So the the river authority has to pulse that water to provide to the people that are buying it when they want it. And so we're losing a lot of access just because of the drawdowns as well. So this is a topic that when you said like, let's come up with the three that anglers need to know about. Um, if tomorrow you went to Cayuga and there was a sign up that said, Hey, no fishing. 
it, you'd be up in arms, right? Oh, yeah. But until it's at your doorstep, it's not really something an angler should be concerned with. But we have to understand that that's a natural lake. Reservoirs are not natural bodies of water. Reservoirs are owned by somebody. That water is controlled typically by somebody else. So you have two entities that are controlling a, a, a reservoir. And angling is really low on that list of priorities. So whenever so we any put, reservoir potentially some lake has the potential to be closed so, off completely. I have a question here though. Yeah. And and this relates to the Great Lakes fisheries and a little bit of like ocean fisheries as well, because as you know, the United States government is trying to go into more environmentally friendly energy sources, such as mm -hmm. windmills, right? And there's this huge debate going on on a lot of the Great Lakes to where they want to do wind farms and put offshore wind turbines in on the Great Lakes. And ultimately what that does is it's going to, one, in my opinion, and this is opinionated here, one, it's going to ruin a lot of fish habitat for fish, but also it's going to close water because you can't get within a certain distance of these offshore wind farms that they're going to put in on the Great Lakes. So essentially, wouldn't that mean the United States government is basically closing off a giant natural body of water if they were to do that in certain sections? Yeah, in the scenario you just presented, that would fit under loss of access. Yeah. Um, it's for greater good. It's for whatever an emerging technology. I mean, um, you know, we can have a debate on what is the cleanest source of energy all night long, but um, yeah, nuclear. But but in the uh, in the example you you gave, it it's kind of like West Texas. When I drive across West Texas, I see a lot of wind turbines and I see a lot of solar panel farms. And neither one of those has great ecological habitat around it. Um, you strip away those things so that you can put that equipment in. And because it's far away, you don't see it. Um, but whenever you, it's just like, you know, you can't get next to the dam to fish. Well, you're not going to be able to get next to the windmill to fish either. So I, mean, I think and the example you gave, Andy, that's great. That's two times you were right in one episode. Hey, chalk it up for a round of applause, all right? Like, <laughs> but yeah, like there's there's a huge debate. Like, if you drive down the Great Lakes right now, just about on any Great Lakes, you'll see signs out that say "Say no to wind farming" because it's something that our government wants to put in, in be federal government or state government that they want to put in. But like, it almost seems like they're not even willing to study the effects that it's going to have on the environment, such as sturgeon spawning areas. So it's going to affect that. It's going to affect like great migration patterns of fish. And also it kills a lot of birds from research that I've done on windmills through school mm -hmm. that they kill a lot of migratory birds because if you put them in the path that they travel, they just fly into them. Yeah, so. that's, that's, that's correct for sure. And then I think about, well, how much zebra mussel habitat is that? I mean, you, there's so many things. Uh, that sounds like a horrible idea, but that is a loss of access idea that's right in your backyard. If you don't get with your state agency, if you don't look for, and, and this should be the theme of tonight, is on your state agency's website, if there's any say that they have in this subject, there's going to be a public comment period uh, to where you as an angler can type in your comment and they have to read it and they have to address it. So we need 
hundreds of thousands of anglers to do that if we're going to save, you know, a situation like that. Yep, so there's the first one, Bailey. Loss of access, that is a great topic that all anglers need to have on the back of their mind because uh, we're managing fisheries to make them better. Let's make yep. sure that the next generation can still enjoy them. I love that. that yep. That's one I had no idea. I didn't, I didn't realize that was a thing with reservoirs that it's, I mean, you might not have specific data in front of you for this, but like, is that happening at a fast rate? Like, is that well? So more well-known? This is this is the beautiful part about it is reservoirs, like I said, they peaked in construction. They've declined in construction. Now, through regulation, the decommissioning of the power generation and things like that is increasing. So we know that it's increasing over time. We don't know it to what level it's going to really increase. And it's going to take angler groups. It's going to take good agency partners to kind of prevent these things. Um, but it wouldn't be like for Texas example, um, if Texas Parks and Wildlife would have had the money to purchase Lake Fairfield, then yeah. they would have done that up front whenever the land went for sale. And that would be a state-owned fishery. But they didn't have money set aside for that because why would they? That was never never something that they had to plan and budget. But that goes to your state house, your state, uh, you know, Senate, they need to be uh, appropriating funds to purchase more state lands and state lands need to include water. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So let's piggyback that into reservoir aging. Cause I think yeah, these topics come together pretty close. Yeah. So reservoir aging is a, is a process that starts the day the dam is impounded. So once again, for, the Great Lakes system, this really isn't an issue, uh, but for all your reservoirs, this is an issue. So the day a dam is impounded, what that is, is that's a physical barrier that impounds or stops water from going downstream and builds it up on the latter side, right? So as that's happening, everything that's carried in the water stops as well. Because things like sediment and nutrient they go with water as the flow increases, the further they go because the speed of the water doesn't allow them to settle to the bottom. Mm. But whenever you impound with a dam, you slow water down to the point that the energy within the water allows particles and things to fall out. So think about this. The day we put the dam up, starting from that day on, the watershed is carrying sediment and nutrient into the lake and slowly filling it in until it's land again. And then eventually, there, it, it has no storage capacity, right? And instead, that water now runs through like it's a, a stream or a creek or whatever, and then water falls down because that's the only option. There's no storage left. Now, that is a 100, 200, 300-year process, right? It's not happening so rapid that we're gonna start losing reservoirs today. But what we do see instead is this reservoir aging process is filling the upper ends of our lake with sediment. So when we look at a reservoir and we, we go to the upper end of it, we'll start seeing sediment deposits. We'll start seeing eroded banks. When a bank erodes, that's sediment that's now in the bottom of the lake. So you guys were just talking about Omnia, go on the app, find the hard bottom, right? Yeah. What's the opposite of hard bottom? Soft bottom? Yeah, soft bottom. Silt. Where did the silt come from? Uh, erosion. Erosion or the watershed. That's what I'm talking right. about. 
Yeah. If we go into the Omni app and we see the opposite, we see soft bottom, we know that's sediment deposit. That's reservoir aging. It's right there in your face. That is where your sediment is being deposited. Well, when sediment's being deposited, what happens? You lose spawning habitat. You lose shoreline, the complexity of shoreline. You also, sediment isn't the only thing. You have nutrient bound to sediment that is now in the lake. So at yeah. some point you become more nutrient rich, which means you either have like algal blooms, even maybe blue-green algae, which is harmful algal blooms, um, or with that sediment deposit, nutrient rich, you have a lot more shallow water. So whenever you have some of these invasive species plants pop up, there's a nutrient source for them to use and there's the ability to get sunlight. So they grow at a greater extent. So when we look at reservoirs and we say like things like, well, I don't want them to spray the reservoir, uh, spray this plant, you know, and they haven't historically done that. Why do they have to do it now? It's because the reservoir is not the same as it was 40 years ago. The reservoir today that they're trying to manage is shallower, softer, more nutrient rich. That also means the storage capacity is decreasing and technically the carrying capacity of fish is decreasing. Uh, so we're managing them to be better and better fisheries, but we're doing it in a smaller body of water. Now, this is why um, I argue that right now um, is, is the height, the most interesting time to be a fisheries biologist. There's two of them, really. Initially, when reservoirs were built, that was like Jurassic Park, right? You could stock fish. You could do crazy things. It's like, let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, we've got past Jurassic Park mode. We went through management mode. And now we're in how do we recreate uh, these fisheries? What do we do to remove sediment? How do we manage the watershed? How do we armor shorelines? Uh, so this issue affects every reservoir from the day it was impounded. Steve, what would be, uh, if you have off the top of your head, a reservoir that might be going through this right now? Because I want to test this app um, and the bottom hardness to see if that's something you can actually see with the app. Yeah, I, I would think um, something older would be your easiest. Like a TVA chain, maybe like a Gunnersville. Yeah, a TVA, a Gunnersville would be fine. Anything like Sam Rayburn would be good in Texas. I mean, anything that you look in the upper end of the reservoir. So go upper end and you're going to see. It really is better even on Google Earth uh, whenever you can really look at... Um, Remember, you can look at how shoreline is changing and how sediment is being deposited. Let me uh, go to bottom hardness. On this map. Yeah. Me. Yeah, bottom hardness. This is great. I mean, this is why something like Omnia is so important to have. Because if you, you know, just like you were saying, like, I'm going to look for hard bottom. Well, maybe whenever you're doing your map study, you look for big sediment deposits and you avoid those areas or you know how to navigate throughout a fishery a little better because of that. I'm trying to get it on this. Uh, You're great. I know there's an online version here. I, I know how phone. to do it on the app. Yeah. <laughs> but you're going to go any of the, in the upper part of a reservoir, you're going to see silt deposits. Um, so as you move, in theory, as you move towards the dam, you should see more hard bottom 
but silt doesn't uh, silt doesn't deposit necessarily like snow. You know how you get like a drift and a bank and all those things. Uh, silt deposits based on the type of particle that it is. Uh, so as it erodes the shoreline, it's going to fill areas really quickly because that's a heavy clay. But um, silt is lighter, so it floats in the water column and it and then it deposits when current drops. Um, so you'll see things like um, you know coves, points that change over time, sandbars that are deposited. I mean, you've seen evidence of reservoir aging every single time you're on a body of water. That's not a natural body of water. Hmm. What I'm going to do is I'm going to enter the studio with my phone, pull up the app. So we're going to have two I'm actually Bailey's. really curious. We'll have, we might have two Bailey. Yeah. Be dangerous. Andy, I'm glad you brought me as backup with two Baileys on. <laughs> I'm trying to figure this out as well. Bailey, I, I don't have to be on the desktop. There you go. Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued. Well produced. <laughs> this is about as best as it gets. Uh, no, nah, I, when you made that point, it had me thinking. We were literally talking about the bottom hardness, and it's. Right. Can you pull this up on the app? Like, is that something you can see? Yeah. I mean, if you look at a Google Earth image, you can physically see and you'll see like algal blooms and things like that associated with the nutrient in input. Yeah. And if you go to a bottom hardness map, you will see soft bottom. Because, I mean, I use the exact same software on my clients whenever I'm mapping their lakes. Um, you know, when we build a lake, Bailey, we map it. And then every year during our surveys, we re remap it so that we can see where sediment's being deposited. Uh, if you look at like some of the lakes in Nebraska, uh, Kansas, they're actually going through, they're smaller bodies of water, but they're going through the process of draining them down, digging out coves and creeks, and putting in basically false dams, that then as sediment's deposited, it would get captured in those dams, those sediment basins. And so then every few years, they can do a drawdown on the lake and clean the sediment basins out. So we start thinking about like state agencies that are going above and beyond. No one thinks of Nebraska or Kansas, but they are going above and beyond to keep their reservoirs uh, from aging. Good for them. And is that because probably like the prominent fish species out there would be like a walleye and that the walleye people probably spoke up and like our fish population is dwindling. It's, we need to it's actually like more uh, reservoir management is based a lot on land use. So it's, it's actually more land use mm -hmm. in the fact that you have more farmland. So your process of sedimentation happens more rapid. Uh, cause we have shallow farmland that's, that's, you know, periodically stripped of vegetation. You get a lot of erosion, uh, and siltation from that. Got it. So I pulled up Chickamauga. Because uh, I didn't have yeah. any data for... So take me to like Grasshopper Creek or something like that. Grasshopper, okay. I have it up by the dam. So let me okay. move here. Yeah, move away from the dam. Or Richland Creek. Richland's probably mid-lake, so Grasshopper would be far enough up lake. Let's see. All right, I got Grasshopper here. Let me see if I can connect the phone without blowing out everybody's eardrums. Just mute it. Yeah, that's what I'm. I got to get in the studio to do it because I'm looking at Grasshopper right now, and I it's actually pretty crazy. 
All right, hold, please. Andy, take it away for a second. Yeah. I was, we, I was looking hey, at Hey, Andy, on the Major League Fishing side, um, whenever we competed at Watts Bar two years ago, we went and did a big habitat project in Grasshopper Creek. Um, whenever the biologist there, we, we kind of chatted with him about what he would want uh, out of a habitat project because I wanted something that uh, you know was measurable for ourselves so that we could measure success. And at that time, I was really interested in on Chickamauga. There's no way I could put enough habitat to like build out a lot and, and have big fishery effects. So I asked uh, Joey. Joey's the Joey Root is the biologist there. I asked Joey what two creeks would he say most tournaments go in and out of and he gave me richland and grasshopper and so i got real familiar with both of them because uh my idea was if we're going to put habitat out let's put it in the two creeks that most tournaments go out of so whenever those tournament fish are released they have this really great habitat to go recover on so we put out um like 250 uh artificial mossback fish habitats in those creeks uh, for fish to recover on. And so far I've heard a lot of great success from Joey. They do electrofishing service uh, surveys there annually. And uh, I'd be real interested if Bailey was going to go fish Chickamauga, if he'd go up to Grasshopper Creek or Richland and uh, see, see if they are as good as I've been told. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, basically by putting structure in and you can forgive me here if I'm wrong, right. By putting structure in on areas where you have a lot of silt and soft bottom, it's helping fish, even bait fish and algae grow, healthy algae grow so that you can have baby bait fish there, help raise right. the baby bass as they come out from the spawn of the fish that aren't being released. It's just overall better for that area because you have structure in a silty spot. Well, we do, we do just like an angler would. We try to avoid the extremely silty spots, mm-hmm. uh, look for the hard bottom and, and try to put in habitat on hard bottom when possible because habitat's going to sink uh into that silt but yeah yeah, i would go where the creek dumps actually into the lake because i think that's where the silt will be deposited the most it won't actually be in the creek itself yeah so it'll be in in the upper portions of all the creeks is where you're going to see it first yeah 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 hold on i had to use the screenshot because the app here wouldn't not the app, but the uh, going on mobile. Apparently, you can't share a screen. But here, I'll pull it up here. But we do see see how see how you have some areas where because of contour you have hard bottom, and then adjacent to that where water would change velocity, you have silt deposit. Like something like right here where this creek feeds in. Right, silt deposit. It's showing at the back of the creek here. Right. If you guys yep. can see that, it's showing light. Yeah. So, so think about this, guys. Um, on some of these reservoirs, yeah, look at that, Bailey. That's a that's a great silt deposit right there. So, in some of these reservoirs, you're losing like eight to twelve inches of shoreline every year because that silt is moving in. That is insane. Uh, yeah, that's the reservoir aging process. So, like in the upper. I have another question for you, Steve. So yeah, when it, when you have a hydroelectric dam on a river system like these big lakes like Chickamauga as well, like up top, the silt 
intensify whenever you have like a great flood event and they allow more water to flow through because you're getting that shoreline erosion right and a lot of times the banks actually get wider because they erode and it causes the lake to become shallower in that area correct yeah that's correct so so your silt comes from the land within the watershed doesn't have to come adjacent off of the shoreline you also have shoreline erosion and that comes from mainly land use practices, lack of uh, vegetative buffers, uh, such as hardwoods, um, you know, shrubs, bushes, grasses. You need all those things in the shoreline. When you clear a shoreline or whenever you put in like a, um, like a seawall or something like that, if it's not built correctly, all that sediment does go into the lake. But that's going to be a harder clay, most likely, Andy. So it's going to show up a little bit different on this where that yellow and orange, we're really talking about true silt. So you see like some of these pastures to the south um, that have no, no trees on them. Every time it rains that the sediment that is in that pasture is brought downstream into that Creek. And, and then when water velocity changes, it settles down and that's what makes soft bottom. It's pretty crazy that the Omni Efficient app picks this up. No, this is perfect. This is a great resource you guys have. Uh, and it makes the point of reservoir aging pretty concrete and in our face. Um, this is an issue for every reservoir that's ever been constructed. So what is the solution to something like this? Is it basically just yeah, flood it, so dredge it? Or it, starts, uh, it starts at a watershed level. So we look at how are we using land that is going to immediately flow into a reservoir? Is that farmland? Is that a Walmart parking lot? Like what is that land? That's really important. Uh, the next part of that is what do you do on the immediate shoreline to slow water down? Because that water, as it travels at a rapid speed, that's when it can carry a lot of sediment. So is there a way to slow water down before it actually gets to the reservoir? Could you use check dams, vegetative buffers, something like that to reduce velocity and drop sediment? Those would have to be cleaned out periodically because they are going to accumulate. And then uh, the last thing is, can we do periodic drawdowns and draw a reservoir down and remove sediment? But that's multi-million dollar projects because sediment has to dry. It can't just be moved um, as a wet source. It has to dry and then that sediment has to go somewhere. Um, you know, off watershed or, or to some sort of site to be contained. So logistically, that is the, the biggest question. It's like, what do we do long-term to prevent this? Um, or are we going to accept the fate that every reservoir at some point in history will be land again? That's pretty crazy. Too much to think about. All right. I mean, so I how about a the place last... like Chickamauga might need it at this rate. <laughs> You're terrible, Bailey. Might just need to drain that sucker and restart <laughs> those poor fish. Man, you're <laughs> they deserve, rough. They man. deserve a vacation. Take you're them fish and go put them in private ponds somewhere else. <laughs> there you go. Um, so that brings us to our last one because they, they all are interconnected, as you see. Yeah. Loss of access kind of is interconnected to reservoir aging which is interconnected to habitat loss. So through that same process, uh, when a lot of our reservoirs were built, they weren't built 
with the idea that this is going to be a reservoir and so we're going to manipulate the entire shoreline to compact it, to armor it, to put the correct vegetations on it. Instead, they just flooded whatever was there. And by flooding whatever was there, you actually flooded not what we would call a riparian zone. The riparian zone is an area adjacent to a stream or river um, that is kind of built evolutionarily to hold sediment and, and maintain itself. Instead, it was it was flooded into an upland, and an upland doesn't have those protective uh, mechanisms. So we have the erosion that occurs. We also have all the timber that was standing in a lot of reservoirs, and the standing timber, uh, it slowly degrades, and that, that degradation depends on the amount of oxygen, uh, time that oxygen touches it, um, as well as, like, is it constantly underwater? Is it drying and then being flooded again? Um, and then, of course, the species of tree. And so what we're seeing is, through the processes of erosion and siltation, along with tree degradation, uh, we're losing habitat rapidly. So now we're faced with, what do we do? How do we, how do we create brush piles? How do we create rock piles? How do we create something that's sustainable do we use artificial habitat that's going to last, you know, 100 to 200 years and probably be buried in sediment before it would ever degrade? Like, what do we do? And how do we do these things at a scale that's, uh, you know, something that's impactful to a fishery? Um, also, as part of that, you have that vegetation encroachment, uh, the area of the littoral zone, the area of a lake where light can hit the bottom and vegetation can grow is increasing through the siltation. So you have all these habitat issues uh, where habitat loss really becomes probably the easiest one for anglers to grab a hold of. Because uh, we understand if I put a brush pile in tomorrow, I don't care where, Andy's going to go catch fish on it the next week. We know that that works. Uh, same thing if I do a mossback habitat. If I hang a mossback from a dock or put it out in the lake, uh, for sure, that's going to hold fish next week. So we know that the fish themselves need habitat. We know that we're losing it at a rapid rate and we know the solution. We just have to go and do it. Uh, that's whenever I do my work with Major League Fishing, uh, we have a great partner, Minkota, who believes in this exact same thing. They believe in the fact that the more habitat we have, the more anglers that are going to catch fish. And that's a great thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I was say, this is something like that specific subject. You're in the trenches pretty deep. Um, regards with yeah, I spend a lot of time with Habitat. Um, mm -hmm. You have to. You have to. You have to. And the projects that we do at Major League Fishing, I mean, Bailey will invest $25,000 in a week in, in purchasing Habitat and putting them out. Uh, we don't shy away. The last three years, our total is $150,000 that we've invested in Habitat. Um, we really push hard. And your state agencies... Almost every state now has a habitat coordinator, that this is their sole job is to address this. Like, what do we do for create partnerships, get the equipment, go put the habitat out. How often do we need to put habitat out? How long is it lasting? There's, there's somebody at your state that is working on this part every single day. Now, the hardest parts are, of course, the economics of whether you're buying habitat from Mossback or you're cutting down trees, you still have to move them out into the lake. So there's some economics there. Uh, what does that cost in labor time um, as well as like fuel and, and those things? And then 
how do we do it in a way that is going to be most effective for the fishery? Um, and then I guess technically there's still some conversation about like what types of materials do we need to use across the United States? Um, you know, one of the emerging issues that habitat people are aware of is a thing called microplastics and microplastics like you know, maybe you've heard of them, maybe you, but you don't know how they impact fisheries or where they come from. Uh, the number one source of microplastics is, is synthetic fibers. So we look at the shirt you're wearing, I'm wearing, Andy's wearing. Uh, every time we wash them, fibers come off. Whenever you, whenever that washing machine sends that water down to a sewer, that sewer leads to a river or stream that leads to a reservoir. That's a big source of microplastics. The other one is every single mile we drive down the road, we're pulling tire rubber off of our tires. That rubber sitting on asphalt that has no way to break down. The next time it rains, it's washing off into a stream, into a, a storm drain, which is going to lead to a stream creek river that goes to a reservoir. So we know we're putting in microplastics just in our daily life. Uh, we're just now starting to learn what that means for a fishery, how they enter into the food chain, which species of fish consume them and what's it going to do long-term. Those are still questions that we're trying to answer. That makes sense. Yeah. That, that's the scariest part is how do you solve that one? The microplastics. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you really don't at this point, you can, yeah. you can filter, you can filter water and remove microplastics. That's how we find them. Um, but I've been on private ponds in pristine areas in Texas that have nobody on them. And I have found blue fibers. Do you know what blue fibers come from? No. Blue jeans. What? Yeah. So huh. somehow, whether it's, you know, the homeowner, the, the pond owner's jeans, my jeans, like somebody has dropped some fibers in. We didn't know. We didn't know how it happened. Are they, can you see these to the naked eye, like the fibers themselves? You cannot see them with the naked eye. Um, could that be evaporation then? Like, could they... Uh, there are types of microplastics that can be um, deposited from rain. Yes, but that's that's more rare. Um, okay. They're slightly larger in size than what can be transported uh, through rain, uh, mostly. Yeah, and we're still learning. I mean, we're still learning, and nobody wants to make yeah. mistakes uh, on that on that front. But whenever we start talking about things like artificial habitat, the cool part is we don't know of a mechanism that breaks down. Uh, an artificial habitat. So we know um, that we haven't found a way for a moss bat to create a microplastic in a reservoir. So we know that right now that's safe science to use. The hard part is in the 70s, they thought putting tires in the water was a safe science to use. So we're still learning, uh, still doing all the processes to make sure that that's the best management practice. But right now, um, it looks like using a plastic uh, product, a PVC that doesn't have plasticizers in it. Plasticizers are, are the uh, things that make plastic soft. And that is what leaches into water and can cause an issue. So using PVC that doesn't have plasticizers um, looks to be the most long-term economic way to do habitat restoration. Wow. Yeah. And I, I found it kind of humorous to some of the people that uh-oh. He's frozen. All right, Andy, you're up again. I, I don't know exactly where he goes. He was talking about... Oh, 
maybe it's backed by humorous somewhere there but like microplastics though just in general is like a huge conversation right like just your laundry alone a lot of bath soap contains microplastics that wash into a watershed it's and not just the fish and what they're eating and swimming in but it's also in a lot of the water that we even drink right like it's it's a never going away problem and issue that we're just starting to learn about the possible well, the good, the good news on the fish side is there has not been the identification of a plastic within muscle tissue so we're not whenever we consume a fish we're not consuming plastic uh so that's the good news right now so far so, so bailey what's humorous uh, I was going to comment on the, like the mossback habitat where some people think where it might be re-implementing natural habitat, like say a natural brush pile, which is done. And I'm sure it's just fine, but for longevity purposes, like this is where you guys are looking at for long-term sustainable mm-hmm. and obviously environmental friendly. I, I was laughing a while ago at one of the posts that some people like, oh yeah, His internet is rough tonight. Yeah, I don't know why. It seems yeah, like it kind of comes in and out for him, and it and it really stinks. Like nothing he can do about it, but it is what it back? is. Yeah, you're back. Frozen face. There you dude, go. I I don't understand. What I literally moved my desk five feet, Steve, and it wasn't having problems before, and I moved it five feet, and now I'm having yeah. horrible issues every single time. Oh, that sucks. So you were saying you saw a post. You saw a post about yeah. What? My comment was honestly pointless, but it was uh, no. It we're was, excited about it. It was it was one of the posts from Mossback, and I think you guys were on like some sort of barge that you were dumping these things in the water. Somebody assumed it was a dock, and they're like, "Yeah, throwing plastic in the water is is real smart for everybody jumping off the dock or something like that." And it's just it, yeah. I, again, my comment was, was pointless. No, I mean the the internet can be a rough place. Um, you know, I, I think I, I hear a lot of talk about using plastic habitat and, and, you know, the negative of, well, you're putting plastic in the water. How good is that? Well, I mean, you know, at least from my house, uh, my water comes into my house with a two inch PVC pipe mm-hmm. and it's good enough for me to drink. So I, I then think, well, my water comes from Brownwood Water Municipal and within their building is PVC pipe that all the water runs through. Yeah. And then the bigger point about our reservoirs is we all know that we prefer docks with plastic encapsulated foam because we don't want foam floating around all of our reservoirs. That's plastic. Now that's polyethylene, not PVC. PVC is more stable than polyethylene. So the hard part is anybody who says like, we shouldn't put, PVC in for habitat uh, is missing the point that you're already putting plastic in to protect the reservoir from foam degradation. Um, and PVC is a safer structure. And Mossback, uh, they don't use plasticizers and not using plasticizers is a big deal. Mossback also uses recycled PVC. So it's not that they're creating new plastic to do this. They're recycling it uh, at, at a couple places on the East Coast. So it's all U.S.-based plastic coming in with no plasticizers. 
It really is the safest product right now. Um, but there's there's great research. There's research uh, that's being done at universities right now to identify the sources of microplastics and what they do in fisheries. Um, and, and I guess the point is there's no mechanism for them to break down. So that's where the science is leading us right now because habitat loss is a true issue that we have to address. We can put brush in. Brush, depending on the species, last three to five years. We can put hardwoods in. Uh, depending on where they are uh, in the water column, they're going to last five to 15 years. There are some instances where people have put hardwoods down and, and 30 years later, they are still there. Yes, in some rare instances. Uh, but we do know that an organic material that goes into a reservoir decomposes. As it decomposes, it creates sediment. So we are now going back to the other conversation that we just had where how many times do we want to put brush piles in and then turn into soft bottom? Yeah. Because we know that's going to happen. Uh, yeah. So if, if we're going to look at the three issues that I put together, the loss of access, the reservoir aging, and the habitat loss, and we put them all together, those are three topics that every angler needs to know about, and they're all interconnected. I love that, Steve. Yeah. Andy, any takeaways? Um, no, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to like put it all together here. No, I think the conversation was great. And I mean, even the subjects that Bailey and I touched on to, it's all important. I think yeah. the end of the story is like, we can all do better to try and improve the fisheries that we have now and try to preserve them the best we can for as for as long as we can until because i mean everything's aging eventually some of these reservoirs that are like fabled fisheries are probably going to run out of time not the fish will always be there but they won't be what they were so i think we can all do our own part to try and improve it and that's picking up fishing line on the bank and throwing it in a recycling bin or just simply uh, maybe even monitoring where you're seeing new silt come into a reservoir that might not be on the Omnia Premium Pro and maybe reporting it to your state agency like, hey, this area of the lake is drastically changing. Like, I think we could all do a little part. Maybe finding a way to have a state implement like a journal program for the people who fish on lakes to talk about what is changing in their fish catches and we know bass fishermen are stubborn, so they'll never talk about that and give up any information. But like, like these are all things that we could do to try and improve the fisheries that we have to allow Indeed. them to be more sustainable. You're right. Three times in one episode, my brother. I mean, the truth is what Andy's saying is as an angler, uh, be a conservationist, be, you know, stewardship minded. Uh, stewardship means the educated use of a resource, uh, do that and, and then pick out your favorites. Pick out your favorite things that, that Andy Bailey and I brought together tonight uh, or some that we didn't touch on and be a champion of those and go out and help the community and be positive about it. Um, you know, nobody needs to be yelled at because of, you know, something they did. They, they threw a fish in the wrong way. Nobody needs to be yelled at about that. Uh, but be a champion of how you can improve your fishery um, and, and maybe find like-minded people and create some sort of group, conservation group, or join a nonprofit that already is doing those those works 
um, and improve them on the ground. Heck yeah. Yeah, love it. So Sweet. I, I got nothing else beyond that. I, I think that this was important to talk about. Uh, I'm glad we gave people some sense of mind of, you know, clear issues that us as bass anglers need to yep. understand. Um, and right. again, just Steve, always yep. appreciate you coming on here and, and bringing the knowledge. I know you're about to close this, but I'm going to throw another little bomb at you real quick. I spent the week uh, with like 58 biologists and from across the U.S. And one of the topics that I want you guys to know that biologists are thinking about is forward-facing sonar. Um, but I will caveat that with saying that biologists are much less concerned than anglers are uh, when it comes to bass populations and exploitation with forward-facing sonar. The issues that we're really concerned with are, are fish that are not commonly released, like walleye, like crappie, even your big sunfish. Because when those anglers go out using that technology, they're able to select individuals and harvest them at a more rapid rate. And we know that they're not being released. When it comes to tournament anglers or bass fishermen in general, we know that we're going to have a very high release of those fish, if not too high, uh, when we're talking about a population level. So forward-facing sonar uh, consensus from from the people that I've been meeting over the last month and the, the conference I was at this last week, uh, consensus is whenever we're talking about a fish that uh, has some consumptive use, people are consuming them, they're, they're harvesting them every day, especially guides uh, that are harvesting them every day. That's where they're looking at what is the impact of forward-facing sonar. Much less concerned with somebody who's going to be catching and releasing fish because uh, we feel like that's a safe practice at this point. Is there anything being done on that end? Like in regards to, is there any talk of, I mean, you hear everybody, the people out yeah. there saying, oh, ban the, the tech and everything. Is there any discussion from biologists about for those species specifically or is there anything mm -hmm. like? Yeah, there's, uh, you know, what the scientific method is, you create a hypothesis of what's going on. You create an experiment about it. You get results from that experiment. Then you do a new one and you keep refining until you have concrete results for or against something. Uh, there is, it, there's one study that I have read addressing specifically forward facing sonar. And it was in a, a crappie population. Uh, so they were looking at exploitation of crappie and without going into just all the details of the survey, or the study, um, what they concluded was that the anglers with forward-facing sonar um, and the anglers without forward-facing sonar both believed that forward-facing sonar gave the angler an advantage in catching more and bigger fish. But when the biologists looked at the numbers, the catch per unit effort, they found that there was no difference between the two populations of anglers. The difference was in the angler's perception of what happened that day on the water. So shocking. shocking. And that's one study. We're gonna we're gonna as as studies are put together, we'll have a whole group of them. Then a bunch of scientists will get together and they'll make a consensus statement on it. We'll have conferences where we discuss this topic. 
I would love um, to be like a fly on the wall in those yes. conversations. Well, you can come to any American Fisheries Society conference. You can be a member of the American Fisheries Society without being a, uh, a biologist. I am the president-elect of the Texas chapter. And if you are in this audience right now and you are from Texas, we will have our meeting in Nacogdoches in February. And I would love to have you there. Um, you're going to get presentations on all sorts of species. You're going to have every biologist from the state that makes decisions there. We do each state has a chapter. We also have divisions. And so um, that is a beautiful picture of Bailey, by the way. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Just everybody, if you're not watching, go to right now and find Bailey's picture. Oh, sorry, Bailey. So American Fishery Society also has uh, divisions. So we have like the Southern Division, Northern Division, like we have these divisions. That's the group of 12 to 13 uh, state chapters. And then we have the Parent Society that is a national organization. It's actually international. Um, so I urge anyone, you can go to AmericanFisheries.org. It's actually Fisheries.org uh, and join American Fisheries Society. Some states are free to be a member of. Uh, other states you can find their chapter websites. But New York costs money. Probably double. Uh, yeah, if, probably. if you want to be part of that conversation, that's a great way to, to be in it. Um, I mean, they value anglers' uh, opinions much higher than you would imagine. And being an angler at something like an American Fishery Society meeting, a state meeting, would mean that you have 50 to 70 biologists that want to talk to you and hear your opinion. And you're going to be the only angler there. So you're going to have pretty impactful opinion. Awesome. Am I back? Yes. You're back, brother. Good Lord. I, I love that. Uh, like Andy said, I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that. And I don't think that anglers realize that that's actually going on, that it's something that they can yeah. become a part of and support. Yeah, I mean, we're, we are a group of biologists that, you know, our, our mission is to really grow the knowledge base within existing biologists and students. Um, so we focus a lot on bringing more students into the society. But there's nothing against a, a non-biologist, an angler, just somebody who's interested in science. Uh, being a member, joining the chapter... I mean, if you, if you come to the Texas meeting, I don't care. I'll put you to work, and you could be on that executive committee the next year. Hey. There you go. go. There you go. Bada bing, bada boom. Yep. You can be a real decision maker. We'd That's love right. to have you. <laughs> well, I'd love to keep tabs on this, especially being that it's a pressing topic that it is, you know, as more discussions are had by the people that, you know, like you guys yourselves that are educated and, and certified to be making these judgments, these predictions, putting in the, the work in regards to legitimate experiments, not just spewing crazy theories on YouTube that uh, drive people mad, um, yeah. but like actual factual data. Um, that's what I believe in is data. We got, I mean, whenever we talk about forward facing sonar, you have to be honest about exploitation and harvest and, uh, you know, are there groups that can target certain size of fish and do that multiple times a day and create revenue from it? Yeah. 
Andy, a guide, could do that. Uh, if he was consuming every fish he caught, that could become impactful, especially as Andy's business grew and he had 10 other boats that he chartered as well, then it becomes more impactful. And then as it grows further from there, it becomes more competitive, it becomes more impactful. Uh, those are the, those are the issues that we're looking at right now from the forward-facing sonar perspective, because those are the things that if you don't get ahead of, you do see populations to decline. And, and there's species like crappie and walleye. Those take a long time to reestablish when they're lost. It's not like we can just stock 100,000 fish and in two years you're, you're catching them again. That's not necessarily how it works. And then there's no guarantee that they'll even retake once they're taken out of the lake, right? Because they might not be right. able to find the same spawning habitat that they spawned on before. And right. Well, and you also you have niche. So whenever something's removed from a population, does something else take that niche and then get a competitive advantage uh, to where the that species can't reestablish because now it has competition when it once did not. So those are the things we're focused on. I wanted to make sure I figured that you guys would have a comment or two, like, why didn't you ask about that? And why is that not an issue? And I think that that is something that biologists are aware of researching. It's just not a, uh, it's not the top three things that, that really keep us up at night. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think we didn't add it in there because I think we're kind of sick and tired of talking about it. <laughs> oh, come on guys. Yeah. I mean, I think the next episode we should do is the the le the three least things, not like the three things that people don't think about at all when it comes to like conservation in a fishery. Because I feel like some of this, some of the stuff that we talked about today is like kind of there in topic and thought, right? Like how do we control fish habitat? Maybe the next episode we talk about three things that people would never think about that could be harming it. Okay. Get even deeper dive that could be a fun episode okay yeah, yeah. i mean uh you know like you guys have always told me you're going to do what the fans want so uh if they've got comments questions yeah. we'll come back and we'll do them all heck yeah yeah throw Steve? them down in the bottom if you're on youtube as in the people yeah. listen slide a dm on on social reach out to steve himself send us an email whichever far away because steve you got some content too that you're putting out yourself uh, I vary, you know, Bailey, you know me personally, Andy, uh, you know, we've met a couple times, but, but Bailey knows my struggles with social media and the fact that I run two businesses. Um, so it's hard for me to put a lot of personal time into it. Uh, I know that I want to do more and we do have some really cool things uh, that, that we're putting together. Hopefully I'll stay dedicated to it and We'll see them in 2024. If not, then it doesn't matter. Nobody knew it was going to happen anyways, right? You just need to have a GoPro on you all day long, just strapped to you. Man, today, Steve. guys, today, um, I know you wanted to end this episode. We're never going to end this episode. That's okay. Um, today, I don't just work for Major League Fishing. I have another company, Texas Pro Lake Management. We, we manage private lakes for our clients. Um, yeah. So we have this client and... He bought this ranch, 800 acres. He's selling 100 lots, five-acre lots, and then he's building out these lakes and this hunting area, common areas, those kind of things. So we built a 10-acre lake and a 15-acre lake. 
the 10 acre lake was built first and was impounded about two and a half years ago. We stocked it with forage. Uh, forage included bluegill sunfish, red ear sunfish, fathead minnows. Last year, we also put threadfin shad in it. And then in June of last year, I put three inch Florida strain largemouth bass in the lake. And we've been experiencing a drought, so it hasn't stayed at 10 acres. It's fluctuated from like seven to five acres, okay? The second lake that's 15 acres, we did the exact same process, but a year later. So we literally just put those bass in this June. So today I was on the electrofishing boat sampling both of those fisheries. The one that we did 18 months ago with the Floridas, whenever we shocked that lake and I have a uh, I have GoPro footage of it. I have, we had a drone in the air. It was amazing. We caught 18 month old largemouth that weighed four pounds. That was what they what? averaged. Yeah. And they were 18 inches long. So these are oh Florida largemouth. Um, that's a pretty exceptional growth rate. That's the kind of growth rate that next year, those are six pound fish. The females move to six pounds. The males will stop at you know, four, four and a half, maybe five pounds. Uh, but the females will be six pounds by the end of next year. And before they're five years old, we will have females that are double-digit fish in that fishery. Um, that's a 10-acre lake. Now, the one below it, the one that's 15 acres, we put those fingerlings at three inches in June. And now we're in November. And so, you know, a little over six months, uh, those fish are 11 inches is what they average. So Bailey, that's triple their length. They're growing two inches a month. We also, you know, whenever I stocked those fish at three inches, uh, that's about 50 bass per pound. So if I was to weigh out one pound of bass, there'd be 50 individuals in that. So today, those fish each weighed 0.4 pounds. So they've almost had a 10 times increase in their weight. That's insane. Actually, right out of 10 times increase in weight in six months. So when you say like, well, you know, I could put a GoPro on and I could, there's a lot that I could do. Uh, what I need is a, what I need is a Bailey. I need a Bailey to tell the story because I collect a lot of really cool data. Uh, either that or I'll just come on every single week and we'll do, what'd you do this week? There we go. <laughs> story time with Steve. Yeah. So, no, we're seeing some cool growth. We're doing a lot of great things um, on the private lake side. We're doing some stuff helping major reservoirs. And on the MLF side, um, they announced we're going back to every fish counts this season, mm -hmm. which means I have to change my uh, my scoreable fish calculator back to what I, what I used to use. Um, so I've got to start putting together the scoreable weights for this next season. So... We also have the Berkeley Lab Summit that happens in December. Uh, it's a program that I put on for state biologists, fish chiefs, and state biologists. Uh, we do a one-day summit with Berkeley uh, and MLF. And we'll, our theme this year is fish disease. So we're going to talk about largemouth bass virus being found in smallmouth bass in Michigan. We're going to talk about the blotchy bass syndrome. That's those black spots, those tattoo marks that you see all over bass. We're going to talk about that. And then we'll go over some of the, the things that we've learned internally uh, with genetics and uh, fish catch data from the Bass Pro Tour. 
So we got a lot going on right now. Yeah. So let me say, uh, you know, I've got a lot of stuff. Yeah, I got a lot of stuff. <laughs> hey, busy's always good. Busy's a good thing. Busy's good. That's right. Well, Steve, you got anything else for the folks before we sign off here tonight? I better not. I better Don't not. ask that question because we'll be here another hour and a half. Hey, that's fine. We'll just we'll just have Steve text us when he's ready to wrap up. That's right. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. This was a fun episode. I love this kind of open-ended topic, Bailey. You guys always put on the best uh, episodes. I loved last Tuesdays. Uh, just just keep up the great work. I really appreciate you guys. We appreciate course, you too. Uh, hopefully I can get my dang Wi-Fi working the way it's supposed to. I might just have to move five feet back over where my desk originally was. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll get that fixed for you guys and for the people tuning in. Maybe call in so we have two two Baileys. Two Baileys. That's that's the deal. So when, uh, real quick, how many episodes do I have to be on before I get a mi- fancy microphone? Right, we can talk about that. Don't what do you guys think? Do, do we need a Steve's Corner where it's Steve's once a corner. week we got Steve yes, love it. talking talking through his topic of the week? If people want it, we can make it happen. Every time Bailey freezes, I'm just like... Call it like the conservation minute or something. Yeah. yeah. It could be like a newscast. Back to you guys in the studio. <laughs> yeah. Bailey's Bailey's frozen, frozen again. again. <laughs> yeah. We have our frozen minute brought to you by Spectrum's horrible Wi-Fi. Right <laughs> there you go. Oh, man, now you're marketing. Endless. Yeah, that's right. Yes. We'll add that on the list of people that never work with us. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> that's an ever-growing list by the month. No, it's only really two people. Spectrum and Trocar. I don't think they'll like us after fantasy fishing. (laughs) We'll blame Brennan Chapman. (laughs) Yes. Nonetheless, Steve, uh, appreciate you as always. And uh, we we should talk about this becoming a recurrent thing. Yeah, uh, Yeah, let me know. Nonetheless, appreciate you. Appreciate the folks. I don't have anything to wrap up with, Andy, unless you do. Oh, I'm good, man. All right. Well, folks, appreciate y'all. Uh, we got some some fire episodes coming next week. Make sure you guys tune in. Steve Estes from Bass Fishing Electronics will be joining us again. And uh, beyond that, hope you guys enjoyed the show. Please leave a rating and review if you're on MP3. If you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe to the channel. And we'll see y'all on the next one. Peace. <laughs>